U.S. regulatory framework is starting to understand your original thesis about Ethereum being a security? What is going to be the the determining factor, the final blow that makes the tree fall? It's like I can say, look, this tree is rotten to the core and it's only going to take a big gust of wind to let it fall. But I don't really know what the gust of wind is going to be. I do believe it's rotten. At the Bitcoin layer, we are advocates of self-custody, and there's no easier way to self-custody your Bitcoin than Envoy. Stay tuned to the video to find out more. Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today I have a longtime friend, Tor Demeester, joining us. Tor is a Bitcoin analyst, investor, and he's the editor-in-chief at Adamant Research. Tor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Of course. So, Tour, you were uh, a Bitcoin analyst way before it even existed as a field of study. Uh, so can you talk to our audience about your first Bitcoin speech in public? I believe it would have been in the year 2012 or 13. Correct me on that. And... Um, a video that I saw on YouTube a long time ago was one of the first videos that really woke me up to the power potential of Bitcoin. I believe you had a million dollar plus price target, uh, potentially from a theoretical standpoint at that point. So just talk to us about being a true Bitcoin OG and what that process was like for you coming up with an investment thesis for Bitcoin before the world had uh, woken up to it. Yeah, thanks for asking. The, I feel like giving a little bit of a, like the, what happened just before the first conference where I spoke, I went to um, the Bitcoin London conference in 2012. I believe that was pretty early in 2012. And... Um, you know, Bitstamp already existed. They were sponsoring a European exchange. And there were a few other like small companies um, that uh, like blockchain.info already existed. They were kind of like the first company to to provide like Bitcoin metrics, like, you know, what, the, uh, what are the, like a blockchain explorer, that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, but so I attended and I already was an analyst. I already had my own newsletter and I was literally the only person that had some kind of economic uh, perspective or like wondering about like price or, I mean, of course people were talking about it, but their background was usually programming or engineering. So it's very much a very, a very geeky conference. Um, I, although Max Kaiser was there too. I, I remember meeting him. Uh, he had been to the Prague conference in 2011. That was, I believe the very first Bitcoin conference in Europe. Um, and so then, uh, that helped me a lot going to that conference and also talking to Peter Weiler, who was, uh, I think he was still living in Belgium at the time and he was a core developer of Bitcoin and I was able to ask him a bunch of questions and then also, you know, the forums and I had some friends who were into it. Um, but so the first conference where I actually spoke was the, uh, 2013 San Jose conference. So in the Bay area, there were about a thousand people there, um, and that, that recording is uh, on YouTube, you're right. Um, and I remember like preparing like several weeks for that because I wanted it to be good. And um, 
I um, I wanted to talk about Bitcoin from an investment point of view. Um, so I, I asked for feedback to several friends and um, yeah, it was only like a 20 minute talk or something. And it was actually at the time, one of my strategies to be able to travel a bit more to conferences was to apply as a speaker because then I get a free ticket. <laughs> so uh, that was one of the reasons why I, I did that. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was Andreas Antonopoulos also gave a presentation for an empty room, Eric Voorhees, uh, Roger Veer, um, you know, a lot of the, and, and the Winklevi brothers made their big entry there. That was the first time they appeared in public in association with Bitcoin. And then uh, notably absent was Mt. Gox. They did not have a stand. Uh, they were basically already in trouble. Um, and I think they didn't want to come on, on U.S. soil. That's very uh, a very interesting background on the San Jose 2013 conference. So when you presented, can you, uh, if you recall, can you explain your price target or long-term investment outlook for Bitcoin at that time? So we hadn't seen a global adoption wave of any sort. Um, it was still... Uh, a technology adoption beginning stage, I would I would say. So what was your outlook on Bitcoin at the time in terms of how big it could grow as an asset class and why? Yeah, well, up to then, my background had mostly been in gold, like similar to Trace Mayer, actually. Trace Mayer had, um, you know, if you want to talk about price projections and like interesting analysis, like from an economic point of view, uh, Trace Mayer is the true OG. Like he, he when Bitcoin was like five cents, he had uh, he had some of these um, speculations about where it could go, and and so basically based on there was a bit of a culture of doing that already in the gold world, the world of gold bugs, because they already were aware that the fiat system was shaky. Eventually, it would it would turn out to be a big catastrophe, and uh, and so then you could speculate similarly about where the gold price was going to go based on certain activities. Uh, and of course, gold is less potent as a medium of exchange. So, for example, you couldn't just take remittance and say like, oh, what if the whole world changed to gold using gold as remittance um, because of the physical properties of gold? But with Bitcoin, that was a pretty easy leap to make. It was just like, oh, what if? And so then it was basically you had some flow analyses of like, OK, we have things that produce cash flow in the world. There are certain markets, for example, remittance, it has like this many billion per year. Um, and then you try to calculate like, oh, well, you know, what kind of, how much would the value of the stock need to be to justify a, a big flow like that? Um, and you could also think about the, the, the black and the gray markets. Like, you know, what if illegal activities started to, because at the time it wasn't clear that Bitcoin wasn't great privacy wise. So you could speculate on that, like gray markets in developing economies or in high inflation economies. Um, and, and so you kind of go also like you would speculate, like, what if it took the position of gold? Like that was another leap to make. Uh, I think it was like $300,000 Bitcoin or something. It would be the equivalent if the market cap of Bitcoin were to equal that of gold. Um, and then eventually it's like, why not? Like once you're at it, like, you know, let's just look at. Uh, global cash reserves, like let's look at global monetary supply and just say, look, like if Bitcoin just uh, takes the big sweep and takes it all, it becomes the dominant money of the world and you can just replace its market cap by that number, you know, 100 trillion or something like that. And then then you get at that Bitcoin price of um, 
of a million dollar Bitcoin. So, so yeah, I mean, it was a, a theoretical exercise. It was based on what we had already seen in the gold world, uh, but it did make you pause and be like, hey, man, like if what these engineers are saying is true, that it's truly censorship resistant and that it can truly grow and that it's the first time the actually we have a scarce asset in the digital realm, then why wouldn't it? You know, te best technology usually wins in the long run. So, yeah, it was um, it was an important exercise to do for me and, and many other people at the time. And now fast forward 10 years, uh, what at what point do you think that your original thesis was confirmed or maybe it's not yet? I would assume that it is. So at what point did you confirm this thesis that this this is on its way to becoming global money because of its decentralized censorship resistant nature and the fact that it is the first scarce digital asset. Uh, and then how has your thesis evolved since then? So you, you admit that it was mostly a gold only approach at the beginning. It was a lot of what ifs, right? So at what point did it stop becoming what if? And how has it changed now, knowing what we know about Bitcoin's adoption over the last 10 years? Yeah, I I almost want to flip it around and say, like, it was more like a hypothesis that I was putting out there for myself to be falsified. Like, I just wanted to see, is there a better Bitcoin? Is there is there something, is there a flaw in, in this analysis? And that's been for the past what is it now, 12 years is what I've been trying to do is to debunk my own hypothesis that this is the best money in the world. Um, and so rather than that, there was one big light bulb moment of like, oh, it is confirmed. I just feel more and more confident because I've, you know, I've, I've just scoured the internet for all the skepticism I could find. And, and uh, it just seems to land in the same categories over and over. And I'm, I'm just not terribly convinced by the criticisms. Um, and so there has been a thing that has changed for me, um, and I, I actually write about it in, in my report, my latest report, um, because initially I thought, I've always been in favor of competition. And so it's like, oh, we have a free market money. Why can't there be a market in money, right? We, we just let a thousand flowers blossom. Um, we'll see whoever comes out on top. And just like on the, on the internet, we had several companies that became dominant. And so similarly, I thought we would have a power law distribution of, of maybe digital currency. So we'd have like probably Bitcoin on top and then maybe at 30% market cap or, or, or uh, yeah, we'd have number two. At 20%, we'd have number three. At 10%, we'd have five other competitors, something like that. Um, um, I, I'm I'm sorry. I feel like I'm doing the percentages uh, injustice because, um, but but something like that where you had like a very dominant one and then a long a long tail of smaller ones. That was my thesis in 2015, which is why I advocated to uh, invest in some of the altcoins. Like it it really was 2014 15 was great. There was great skepticism about these altcoins because like there there was they weren't launched very professionally. Um, it, it was just, um, there weren't many credible theses, but in hindsight, it was kind of the laboratory for the ICO boom, because uh, a lot of those themes were just rehashed and failed, uh, you know, just, just the same. But so, yeah, that's changed. Like my thesis over the last years has been, no, I think it's going to be a winner take all. 
Um, I think Bitcoin is just going to be the dominant protocol, just like um, TCP IP is the dominant protocol in the internet, just like we have the container standard in global uh, global trade, um, the shipping container standard and, and things like that. Now that leads us to Ethereum. You not only are a Bitcoin OG, but you've been watching the Ethereum Bitcoin pair and extracting market information, behavioral signal from that pair, not ETH versus the dollar, right? I want to remind our audience what we're talking about. We're talking about the two currencies relative to each other. So the Ethereum price in Bitcoin, it's a pair that we write about at our newsletter at the Bitcoin layer because we believe that there's behavioral information to extract from that pair. So talk to us about Ethereum. We have brand new SEC litigation coming down on Binance and Coinbase. The Coinbase literature mentions Ethereum and staking in the security realm. What are your thoughts on Ethereum as a security? What are your thoughts on Ethereum versus Bitcoin as a currency pair? As someone who really has tracked this um, for a long time. Yeah, I remember in 2014, I was excited because they, um, I had heard at the conference in 2012, Mike Hearn had done a presentation on smart contracts in Bitcoin and uh, basically made it clear that Satoshi had that in mind, that he had um, uh, written into the Bitcoin client um, about 50 opcodes, which is like like uh, ways to build smart contracts. Um, and so that was his vision. Like we would have smart contracts on Bitcoin and uh, Mike Hearn was excited about it. And so the Ethereum guys early on were going to build on top of Bitcoin. And so I thought like, oh, cool, we have a smart contract layer on top of Bitcoin. That's awesome. And then we saw, um, I remember talking about it with friends, like looking at the auction, like all of a sudden they're doing their own token. And um, they had this weird auction with a very flexible supply. Like basically they were saying, we're going to fix the amount of money we want to raise and then we'll issue however many tokens it takes to reach <laughs> to reach that point. We'll just keep on selling tokens, uh, which just seemed like just totally non-transparent to to me and 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 other other people. And and so that was at one that that was an early red flag. And there's been many many since uh, that basically yes, I believe this is. Um, a security, um, regardless of what any government says, like it is a, a centralized group of people who are issuing um, a token, who are promising uh, profit to the token holder. The idea of um, perpetual income was there from the beginning, like the idea that they would do proof of stake. And so that's part of why people buy the token is they think that I'll get the token and not only is gonna, the token going to be scarce, but it's also going to lead to this stream of income down the road magically that's going to be created for me. Um, and, 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 um, and so, yes, there is the expectation of profit uh, among the, the Ethereum holders. Uh, and it's clearly derived from the efforts of uh, Ethereum developers. Like it, to me, it doesn't matter that these people are spread over se several companies. It's a consortium, you know. Like if if a, a certain judge targets particular people, particular companies, they can basically um, change the whole protocol. And we we already see that now with uh, 
with the um, what is it the OFAC compliance. Um, you know, there's pressure uh, being exerted. I believe that Infura is already um, kind of uh, abiding by that. Infura is, as far as I know, the the largest company that um, basically will run an Ethereum node for you because it's so convoluted and uh, bloated with with technical debt that regular people cannot run an Ethereum node. Like that's the big difference. If, if you have uh, a Bitcoin, sorry, if you, if you download the Bitcoin client, you can literally run it on your smartphone. Like that, that's that, that's what it's designed to be, to be very lean and, and uh, doesn't require a lot of internet bandwidth or hardware. Uh, but it, Ethereum is very, very different. It's, it's really, um, it's a corporate uh, project. Uh, and so Infura, for example, um, they, they apply the, um, the censorship and then um, you have, um, what's that company called again? There's a company that has uh, MetaMask. They run one of the largest wallets and they always link to Infura. It's almost impossible to not use Infura as the company that runs your node. So there's a lot of veins of centralization that run through Ethereum. So yeah, like to kind of to your point, like looking at that pair, Ethereum to me is like the OG when it comes to um, snake oil, like crypto snake oil. And um, and they came. They basically have popularized this idea of uh, put everything on the blockchain, uh, smart contracts up the wazoo for everything. Uh, we're going to live in this meta world where everything is, it's basically a utopian universe that they're selling. And, um, and then, so a lot of the altcoin projects, a lot of the ICOs and later NFT projects have been using Ethereum as a platform, because if you can partner with Ethereum, then they will boost you um, in many ways with, with direct finance or, or technologically or PR wise. Um, and so Ethereum as a token is actually an interesting measure for the collective belief in these fallacies that you can just put anything on the blockchain that you can chain a uh, scale a blockchain forever easily that you can do sharding which is the idea that oh it's not a problem if the one chain becomes too big because we can clip it into different pieces and then everyone can just run a little piece and magically they'll all coordinate together you know that was something that they were selling for six seven years like they were saying that's how we're going to scale and now they finally abandoned it because i mean it was it was a lie from the beginning um but so yeah like looking at that token versus bitcoin it's almost like a it's almost like the liars index or something like that where you can kind of see the higher it goes the higher the delusion the collective delusion goes and as it starts declining it's more like people uh realizing that uh uh, they've been fooled. Joe and I take self-custody very seriously, and it's time for you to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges. This video is sponsored by Envoy, a simple Bitcoin wallet with powerful privacy features. It takes 60 seconds to set up. You can get your Bitcoin off of exchanges right now. There's no middleman. This is the way that Bitcoin was meant to be used. Self-custody. Download it for free in the App Store or the Google Play Store today. Now, back to the video. Fascinating. And so what you're describing there are aspects of the Howey test, right? And for our audience, the Howey test is the SEC benchmark for what determining what is a security. Uh, it sounds like Tor uh, is convicted in 
that Ethereum is a security and fails the Howey test. I'm sorry, passes the Howey test in terms of being- Passes the Howey test. Passes the Howey <laughs> test, of course, in terms of being a security. Talk now a little bit more about your outlook here. Is this SEC charge against Coinbase the beginning of the end of Ethereum, or is that way too dramatic of uh, an approach to the recent events that um, basically what's happening is the U.S. regulatory framework is starting to understand your original thesis about Ethereum being a security? Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, it's all, it's really hard to to predict like what is going to be the, the determining factor, the final blow that makes the tree fall. It's like, I can say, look, this tree is rotten to the core and it's only gonna take a, a big gust of wind to let it fall, but I don't really know what the gust of wind is gonna be. I do, I do believe it's rotten, just like Theranos. Um, yeah, like Theranos, um, you know, the company that supposedly uh, could could analyze 50 diseases just from one drop of blood. Um, that was a scam, and it, it took many years for it to fall. Uh, the same with Enron. Uh, both those companies existed for over 10 years before they actually bit the dust. And so um, I, people often think like, oh, but it's been around for so long, that means it's going gonna, it's gonna to not fail well, that's not true. Uh, and also, for example, there's companies that are not necessarily fraudulent, but that just have a flawed premise, like Yahoo, for example. Yahoo is very popular, and at, at, the, the, at the height of the internet boom in 1999, people thought this is the blue chip stock. This one is the one that's going to be around forever. All the startups are using Yahoo as their platform, uh, but they fundamentally misunderstood that in order to browse the internet, you need algorithms, you need uh, engineering that is top notch and not just a bunch of uh, interns that browse the internet manually and that tr make these nice looking portals. That's never gonna scale. Um, so, so it's also possible that rather than having a big collapse, that Ethereum is just gonna slowly uh, peter over time like Yahoo did. But so if you look at the chart, um, you know, we had a, um, uh, a tremendous rise in uh, Ethereum versus Bitcoin, starting from the launch in 2016 in two big waves. There was a wave in 2016, another big wave in 2017. And then we peaked at 0 0.14 Bitcoin per Ethereum token. And then we formed a double top. So in that period from 2017 through to summer 2018, there was a, a double top. Maybe you could call it a triple top, but each each successive peak was was lower than the previous one. So double top, and then we had a bear market. So we hit bottom at around uh, the winter of 2019. And then it started to ramp up again in 2020 as the uh, basically it came together with the stimulus of um, of the pandemic, when, when there was loads of money being pumped into the economy, we saw that uh, Wall Street bets started booming. We saw real estate started booming and uh, all these tech stocks. And so Ethereum also went on that on that wave. There was lots of VC money to be deployed. Um, and so on the back of that crypto boom, there was also the NFT boom at the time, a revival of ICOs. Um, and so basically you had another peak uh, we peaked in uh, December 2021, which is very interesting because that's kind of the peak in real estate. That was the peak in AMC and all these meme stocks. 
So that's when Ethereum Bitcoin uh, peaked. And again, I would call it a triple top. So we saw uh, the first peak in May 2021, the second one in December 2021, the third one in September 2022. Um, and so... And now we've been sideways. So, so we've kind of like dribbled a bit lower and we've been moving sideways. And I, I think that this is going to be another triple top and we're going to see a serious decline at some point, uh, probably in the coming 12 months or so, uh, once it becomes clear that these regulatory changes, uh, that there's real teeth to the regulators and that developers and companies are actually vulnerable to censorship that there will be projects that will just be abandoned because it's too dangerous to work on because they're not decentralized enough to push through the changes. Um, like, for example, we saw it with Tornado Cash. Um, I don't know if it's still operational, but uh, it does not appear to me that that was a decentralized project. And uh, and so, you know, just like how the Silk Road was shut down, I think some of these like DeFi, you know, these famous DeFi projects will turn out to be very not decentralized, not decentralized finance and very vulnerable to censorship and de facto will be censored. Talk to us about Bitcoin. Let's leave Ethereum. Let's talk about Bitcoin in its current stage of adoption and its current stage of the halving cycle. So where do you see the market evolving and how much do you think Bitcoin is going to react to macro factors versus uh, Bitcoin native factors like its supply and just the overall global adoption uh, over the next year or so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the stuff I was um, also trying to answer with my report um, because it's one thing to talk about Bitcoin's fundamental value, but investors always think about, okay, but what about now? Like, are, are there more shoes to drop? Uh, is there any anything big to worry about that could cause Bitcoin to go, I don't know, to 10,000, right? It's 25,000 now. What if we go down 10,000? Because I want to buy then. I don't want to buy when it's, you know, it's, it's too painful, which I completely understand. So I do try to address those things. Um, in terms of risk factors, um, I'm actually taking a peek here at my own thing. Um, well, yeah, there's the the known coin hordes. So we know that there's stashes of Bitcoin out there. Uh, some of them have been labeled and are known who, who controls them. Um, there is um, the idea that Satoshi has a million Bitcoin, a million out of, let's say, 19 million in circulation now. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that that's going to be liquidated in, in a bear market. Um, if if it's even true that he ever mined that, because that's very contested. Um, then there is the Bitcoin miners. Like, do they have a lot of coins that they could still sell? That's not the case. Like, miners do have some coins, but they're uh, very concentrated with uh, non-indebted uh, companies. So the companies that had a lot of debt, they already sold the extra coins that they had. Uh, then there's Mt. Gox, which is the big exchange that was hacked uh, and uh, and has been going into bankruptcy um, uh, receivership for, I mean, it's almost been 10 years. It was a very complicated issue. And um, it was also the, the Japanese government seems to be quite inefficient at handling these cases. So finally, some of those coins are going to be distributed. It's like 144,000 Bitcoin. But the people who wanted to sell their claim, who are customers that lost funds, 
uh, they have had the possibility to do that for years. You could sell to hedge funds and things like that. So it's unlikely that that would move the price. I do think if, um, and I also write about this, if a bit a big exchange like Binance would bite the dust. And I don't mean just like, oh, they're forced to close the doors, but they actually see a bank run and then it turns out that they are fractional reserve. I do think that could move the price short term. But again, like similar to um, if a, a gold deposit company goes bankrupt, it's not gonna necessarily affect the price of gold that much. I think it's similar. Uh, Binance is long known to be like a, a higher risk exchange that n likely has some shenanigans going on. And so the, you know, Bitcoin whales don't have that much exposure to that. And, and of course, there are people that do, but usually they are uh, newer adopters, weaker hands anyway, uh, people who might even have the budget to rebuy the coins if they lose them in, in a, a bankruptcy like that. And then, of course, we could see a legal crackdown on Bitcoin and we also could see um, uh, a stock market crash. Uh, I think in the case of a stock market crash, Bitcoin probably would slide down a bit because it's very liquid. And so if you have debts to pay off urgently, it, you can always sell Bitcoin. So just like how gold uh, went down in the 2008 crash, but recovered quickly, I think similarly, we could kind of see a flash crash thing where for six months, Bitcoin is not doing well and then it just bounces back. Um, and then the legal crackdown, I think that for now, Bitcoin is really quite insulated from that because it's not a security. It's clearly recognized as not a security. It's also really decentralized. And um, and so it would be quite embarrassing for a large government to try and do a crackdown and realize that you can't really do it. Like you can't really um, just take from people what they've stored in a multi-sig wallet, potentially uh, spread over multiple jurisdictions, et cetera. It's, it's, uh, it's an asset that if you, even if you have a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, in the span of an hour, you can move it to the other side of the globe um, or, or even in, 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 uh, in a control that is spread over multiple continents. Um, so, and also I think that the dollar is not under threat for the moment by Bitcoin. I think once we, we go like above $2 trillion Bitcoin, like right now we're at half a trillion, $500 billion market cap. So I only feel like once we're really into it, the next big, big rally. And at the same time, we see very bad headlines about inflation and, and there's questions being asked about, is Bitcoin a threat to the dollar? Like I think then maybe we should start worrying a bit about uh you know, potential uh, legal action against Bitcoin. So you're talking about... Sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it's it's great. And so you're talking about around a $100,000 price of Bitcoin, which would translate into about $2 trillion market cap that you might see government step up the anti-Bitcoin effort. But until then, it doesn't really uh, remain or exist as a major threat in your mind. Now, what about the dollar itself? Uh, people are obsessed over this de-dollarization narrative relative to other government currencies around the world. Do you give credence to that? And how do you approach the de-dollarization narrative outside of Bitcoin? Yeah, I was just going to say that as Bitcoin goes to 100,000 or higher, uh, not only will we see some crackdowns here and there in the world, but also at the same time, we'll see some countries very explicitly embracing Bitcoin, I believe, especially countries that have 
great national resources that have great um, energy resources because the world is polarizing anyway. And um, Bitcoin is just a fantastic way to to monetize your energy resources. So it's it's a it's a really great way for government revenue. Uh, if if you are like like in Iran or you know it doesn't have to be a country that's that controversial, but you know you're landlocked or you're um, you know like a you know actually in, in um, El Salvador is a good example because they have a lot of mountains, so it's kind of hard to navigate. But at the same time, they have, what, 170 volcanoes. So theoretically, at least you could monetize that you could you could build um, Bitcoin mines all over the country. So so yeah, I think the world is going to polarize around pro Bitcoin and anti Bitcoin, kind of like how the printing press uh, liberated people to think about religion uh, on their own terms and where the, the the Catholic Church was more threatened, their monopoly was more threatened. There was a great polarization uh, in the world where some countries were just saying like, look, no, you cannot do heresy, only only this one religion. And then in other countries, it was more of an open question. Um, like, for example, the United States, of course, uh, you know, uh, New York City, the reason why it was so incredibly popular and why it grew so much is that they had as one of the first places on the planet actual religious freedom um but i, I don't want to digress um sorry i lost the i lost track for a moment we were talking about oh yeah the polarization a hundred thousand dollar bitcoin um de-dollarization you're asking about de-dollarization yeah I, I do think that is a genuine there is a that is genuinely alive in the geopolitical landscape uh, because as the dollar starts to inflate, as the value starts to erode faster, um, it becomes more clear that uh, countries that have agreed to work under the dollar system are getting a bad deal. Uh, like the, the government bonds that they've stacked up often really, really high, those are starting to really look very ugly in their um, balance sheets. And so, yeah, I do think there is, you know, and similarly, countries that have like Brazil or um, trying to think like uh, India, a bit less, but China, for example, they have great natural resources. And so there's kind of this disconnect between we have great wealth, but then we don't have a way to actually store wealth. Like we're, we're kind of stuck with this dollar, which used to be better than everything else. But now it's kind of like, is it especially compared to Bitcoin? Of course, it's kind of looking embarrassingly weak. So in conclusion, uh, what you're suggesting is that the countries with great natural resources that are dependent on the dollar need to seek an alternative and looking at Bitcoin, it's a great potential, but are you act, are you genuinely considering a Chinese one currency block existing, developing and uh, posing a threat to the dollar outside of a Bitcoin competition? Yeah. Honestly, I, I'm not that excited about any of the fiat currencies. I think the, the China has a humongous problem with uh, with debt and um, and and uh, trying to suppress civil unrest, and they're going to have huge food inflation. I think we're going to see massive inflation in China, uh, and similarly, the euro is going to be just very very bad. But I, I wonder if like. You know, because often people think in paradigms, it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, you, you kind of like, how are they going to fix the fiat paradigm? And and um, and you tend to, like, lose track of that. Sometimes things happen on the edges, you know, where, where they don't fit the conventional uh, structure. But in hindsight, they were like lurking. 
And so I wonder if one of the things that has been lurking is stable coins, um, because stable coins are, uh, they're privately run. They're a lot more flexible, of course, than, than fiat currencies. It's, they can manage the, their treasury, their, their, their assets, kind of however they want to. And right now, it, it looks like Tether is, is leading the charge in terms of showing how to run a pro, um, a responsibly run a stable coin and almost like creating a token that is better quality than the underlying because they're investing in short short duration treasury bonds which gives them a yield and by the way if we're going to see a repeat of stagflation of the 1970s in this decade that is the way to go that was one of the best performing assets three-month treasury bonds and you just keep rolling them over and um, and so basically you're you're generating profit just by taking in dollars that that investors give you and uh, and not exposing them to a lot of risk. And then with the profits, you can diversify and you can buy gold, you can buy Bitcoin. And so gradually we're seeing the emergence of stable coins that are backed by more than just fiat. And that's kind of to me, that's showing the way, because ultimately we need to go to at least to asset backed currencies, if not just to Bitcoin outright. And, uh, you know, if you look at all the great inflations, uh, especially the ones during gold standard eras, like the only way to fix the inflation is just to go back on an asset backed currency. That's how Napoleon became so popular because he, you know, they had the they had the Asinia hyperinflation, the French Revolution. And then he came around, started paying his soldiers in real silver. And that's part of why he was so popular in, in the country. And so similarly, of course, in the 20th century, what, what countries have done that have had hyperinflation is they would go back to the dollar standard because the dollar for a long time was kind of as good as gold. Uh, but that's no longer the case. So I, I just wonder if uh, stable coins, because they can operate in this um, international sphere, they can kind of operate where offshore banking used to be and that kind of thing, where they're a little bit elusive and uh, potentially they could build enough reputation to grow really big and to kind of be, be an in-between phase of, um, you know, between fiat and a Bitcoin standard. And of course, some countries could just copy the playbook, right? And I mean, it's any country can just copy the Tether playbook, issue their own token and, and, and you know, go for it. Tour de Meester, thank you so much for joining us today at the Bitcoin layer. Please tell our audience where they can find you online and your latest research report. Yeah, my website is adamantresearch.com. So that's uh, three A's, adamantresearch.com. And if you Google my name, you'll find my Twitter account as well. Tour Demister, thank you so much for joining us here. At oh, the and the, just, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. The report is called How to Position for the Bitcoin Boom. It's 20 pages. It's free. It's the best I got. It's what I sent to my own friends and family. Um, and... Um, yeah, this is, I think, the fifth report I've done since uh, 2012. It's a fantastic report, and I would actually encourage people to check out your Bitcoin Reformation report as well uh, that you published uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, great. Thank you, Tor, for joining us again here at the Bitcoin Layer. Today's video is sponsored by Envoy, a simple Bitcoin wallet with powerful privacy features. It's time to get your Bitcoin off of exchanges and into self-custody today. This wallet is easy to set up, takes only 60 seconds, no middleman, and you're using Bitcoin as it was meant to be used. Download it today for free at the App Store or Google Play Store. Make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit the bell icon to be notified whenever our next video drops. Thanks for watching.